Hello, hello, hello. My name is Andrew, and I would like to welcome you to this week's episode of The Bible Less Traveled. This is a podcast where we are on a journey as fellow travelers into the text of the Bible, a journey that's a little different than the norm. We'll do we'll be doing pretty normal things like reading texts from the Bible, analyzing them, interpreting them, trying to apply them today, but we will be doing so from a decidedly unfundamentalist perspective. This week we continue our arc of episodes tackling different myths about the Bible. The myth for this week is one that is actually pretty closely related to the myth that we tackled last week. And it's this. The Bible is the verbatim word of God. The theological term for this myth is that the Bible is the result of verbal plenary inspiration, meaning that the words on the page are the words of God themselves and are exactly the words that God intended to end up there to communicate God's message to us, the readers. The main issue of this, um, of this myth has, has, uh, is, is twofold. The first is that it's kind of assumed that in order for the Bible to be considered quote-unquote authoritative for one's life, whatever that means, that it must be as purely divine as possible, as free of human influence as possible. The second is that it's assumed that all biblical texts have equal weight, for all biblical texts are the literal word of God. Therefore, it's impossible to make any one text more important than the next, for they're all literally God's words. There are a few different problems with these assumptions. <laughs> the, the first problem, which we won't be exploring too in-depth here, um, is that these assumptions are not from the text, but assumptions that are placed upon it. There are assumptions that demand the text be something that it isn't, namely the literal, verbally spoken word of God. According to the Christian Bible, the word of God is Jesus Christ. If that is true, the Bible itself cannot also be the word of God, but is instead the testimony to the word of God. Put another way, the Bible is the testimony to the work of God in the world. The second problem with this myth is that it attempts to purge the Bible of its human elements, as if the human elements somehow degrade the reality of the scripture's authority. Such a low view of humanity and humanity's ability to witness to their experience of a particular relationship of the divine is, well, sad. I, I don't really know how else to put it. We could probably spend a good amount of time just picking this apart, um, but I'll let myself uh, point out only one more fallacy before we move on. The reduction of the text onto a single plane, i.e. the word of God, robs the text of its complexity. It's why we tend to think of the Bible as a book in and of itself and not what it is. A collection of books, of laws, of poetry, of accounts, of letters, of apocalyptic literature. 
It's why people try to have arguments about contradictions in the Bible while utilizing texts of different genres that are trying to do different things. It's why for many, the Bible has been reduced to a place where we can go to cherry pick verses out of context, because context doesn't matter if it's all God's literal verbal plenary, plen, hmm, plenarily inspired word. Wow, it's a, that is really hard to say. God's literal verbal plenarily inspired word for all texts uh, offer the same weight and authority. To support our horribly, uh, and we can do this to support our horribly misplaced beliefs in the power of positivity or the divine right of the rulership of the government or the existence of different tiers of worth in people or our insistence on strange mishmashed codes of purity cobbled together from all of the convenient places that can be used to support our existing worldviews. Whew. Needless to say, uh, I've got a lot to say about this, but Let's move away uh, from a merely negative approach and focus on constructing some genuine understanding in this myth's place. The Bible is actually a very, very fascinating library, um, and we'll talk a lot more about its formation in a later podcast episode. But for, for today, I want to highlight a couple of very important points. While authorship is a very interesting conversation. More often than not, especially when we're talking about the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, we're not actually having a conversation about authorship. We're having a dialogue about editors, those who stitched the various stories together into their current form. This is a much more relevant conversation, and these editors are the ones who gathered these various stories and wove them together into a larger narrative during a particular time and place uh, to make sense of themselves and their relationship with God. So while these a lot of these stories are about the past, a lot of them are also trying to deal with something in the editor's present. Uh... The first big editorial movement was in the period between 586 BCE and 500 BCE, um, while, uh, while the upper class and religious scholars and leaders of the Judahites were taken into exile to Babylon after Jerusalem was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the religious folks taken into exile brought their oral traditions uh, and wrote them down text became of vital importance, and slowly these stories of their forefathers were woven together to tell a story about both their forefathers and them, namely their identity. How else do you keep a hold of your identity in a strange land than to constantly tell stories that reinforce what it is? This is where we get Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Another editorial wave came in the post-exilic period uh, related to codifying the teachings and sayings of the prophets who had attempted to correct the neglect of the poor and outcasts of society by those in power, this being attributed as the reason, along with the worship of other gods, uh, that led to the exile in the first place. Yet after any of these texts were edited together, initially they were handed down 
uh, and hand copied over generations. The importance of the text led to the importance of the scribe, the one who read and copied the text for future generations. Scribes were not perfect, however, and errors were made. We have some fascinating manuscript deviations, most of which do not affect the meeting too much at all, some of which do. Um, uh, but I want to give a couple of examples of this, uh, of, of texts that bear the obvious mark of, uh, in these cases, scribal addition to the text. Uh, the, the first passage I want to use as an example for this is uh, Ezekiel from uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chebar among the exiles, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Chebar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. Okay. Uh, th 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 seems a little repetitive, and I want to point out a couple things that are really interesting here. Um, the first part of this little tiny passage was in first person, and the second part was in third person. Um, <laughs> the first one saying, I was by the river, uh, and the second one saying, the uh, Ezekiel the priest by the, was by the river. Um, and where is the river? Oh, it was in the land of the Chaldeans. And who is Ezekiel? Oh, he's the son of Buzai. Uh, and when was this 30th year and the fifth day and the fourth month? Oh, it's the fifth month in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile. Oh, okay. So, I mean, this is an instance where a scribal notation in the margins of, a t of the text, uh, trying to give clarity and specificity to a vague date, location, and person <laughs> uh, was copied down into the text by the next scribe and thus passed down as an actual part of the text. Um, again, it doesn't affect the meaning that much. In fact, it kind of helps the meeting. It helps us understand what the heck is happening? Who, who, who is by the river? What, who are the exiles? I don't under. Oh my gosh. So anyway, you get the idea. I think. If you don't, make a comment of it and ask a question, and I'll, I'll get back to you on it. Um, the next example is actually from the New Testament, and I think this is probably one of the more interesting examples. Uh, I'm going to read uh, a big chunk of text, basically Mark chapter 16, um, and, and then we'll, uh, well, we'll talk about it as I go. So when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices uh, so that they might come and anoint him, him being Jesus, in, de dead in the tomb. Uh, and very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? And looking up, they noticed that the stone had been rolled away, for it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe and they were amazed but he said to them do not be amazed you are looking for jesus the nazarene who's been crucified he's risen he's not here 
See, here's the place where they laid him. But go, tell the uh, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, I'm going to stop reading, because this right here is where most of the oldest copies of the Gospel of Mark that we have stop. <laughs> There's no more to the story. Uh, they, 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 an angel told them that, that uh, Jesus was up, uh, had, had risen, uh, told them to go tell the disciples about it. They were terrified. They ran away and they didn't tell anyone about it. The end. Huh. Some of them, if you skip all the way down to the, uh, the second half of the last verse, some of them also include instead of, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Some of the texts include, and they promptly reported all these things to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself also sent out through them from east to west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. So right there, someone's like, whoa, this whole like not saying anything to anyone thing for that, that doesn't make any sense. They were told to do something. Of course they went and did it. Um, and then uh, some manuscripts eventually end up with this whole next section in there. So for they, uh, they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Now after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went away and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe, him e believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven disciples themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reprimanded them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen from the dead. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The one who has believed and has been baptized will be saved, but the one who has not believed will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed it. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. So, in most modern Bibles, we actually see three different endings of Mark, kind of all squished together <laughs> at the end there. Um, but we have three different witnesses to what the ending of this gospel is. Um, again, there's an original author, but we have to think in terms of editors of the text as well. These are living documents, after all, that reflect a lot about the people who engaged with them over time, not just at first. Now, you shouldn't be walking away from this feeling like what I am pointing out is questioning the reliability of the text. 
that falls back into the very same line of thinking as the myth that we're tackling today itself does, flattening the text and stealing away its complexity. So don't leave with that. Think of it in this way. These texts have been around for a long time, used across the centuries. More voices joining the conversation is not a bad thing. Likely, especially in the case of this uh, Gospel of Mark, these endings are summaries of some of the endings of the other Gospels. Uh, someone's like, well, I heard that actually this happened. <laughs> so they worked it in. Um, that's very possible. Uh, but these, these addendums are not illegitimate nor do they make illegitimate the text that they are a part of. They merely bear witness to the importance of these texts, that someone would even think it important enough to try to bring some sort of inner harmony, or even, uh, you know, a more complete ending. And they, they also bear witness to the ongoing reality that is their testimony. Now, there's some other areas that we should... Uh, that should of scripture that should cause us to question this myth, not just scribal additions or errors or things like that. Um, I think my first example would, would have to be uh, the beginning of Genesis. At the beginning of Genesis, uh, chapter one and the first few verses of chapter two um, are, you know, the creation of the world. And then picking up at chapter 2, verse 4, we have the creation of the world. <laughs> now, the first of these uh, is a poem to uh, in, like, super traditional Hebrew poetic style. Like, it it's unquestionable. It this is a poem. Um, and the second, and uh, uh, chapter 2, leading into chapter 3, is narrative. Um, they're different genres. They're also trying to communicate different things. They're trying to do different things. Chapters two through three is trying to explain why the relationship between humans and God is broken. Um, Genesis chapter one doesn't care about that literally at all. Genesis chapter one is trying to show that, uh, God created and that unlike the gods of the ancient, the other gods of the ancient Near East that personified nature um, and acted out creation with war and conflict and bloodshed. Uh, the creation actually went off pretty peacefully and God oversaw all of that, not as a force of nature, but as one removed from uh, the forces of nature and in control of them. And who created them. Um, we shouldn't try to conflate these two accounts of the beginning of the world, um, let alone the other accounts in, in like the Psalms <laughs> and in a, in a few other places. We need to let them speak on their own because again, they're trying to say different things. They're written for different purposes. Genesis chapter one shares a lot structurally in common with the ancient Near Eastern uh, creation myth in Numa Elish. Go ahead and look it up. 
good stuff. Um, but again, that's where I get this whole like war and conflict and uh, literally the land was created from Marduk slaying his mother who is bad and, and, and a chaos goddess of the deep and anyway the, 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 the Genesis chapter 1 is, is what we would call a counter myth um, but we digress and are getting into genre and that's not what we're here to talk about today we will talk about that a different day I promise um, another example that I always like to talk about is from the gospels Matthew and Luke respectively present a genealogy for Jesus. Uh, Luke's genealogy is a genealogy of Mary. Matthew's genealogy is a genealogy of Joseph. Um, you know, the mother and father of, of Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Yeah, okay. Um, Luke's genealogy traces Jesus' line all the way back to Adam. Matthew's genealogy traces his genealogy all the way back to Abraham. What? And, and, and they totally contradict each other, <laughs> like all the way throughout. It's the best. Okay, why does this matter? Um, well, again, they're trying to communicate different things that have to do with what they're larger largely trying to communicate throughout their entire gospels. Matthew's trying to establish Jesus as the fulfillment of promise, the awaited Jewish Messiah. So he's tracing him back to the, the common ancestor that all Jewish people claim Abraham. There you go. Luke, on the other hand, is trying to establish Jesus as for the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike, men and women alike. And so Luke's tracing the mom's genealogy and he's tracing it all the way back to Adam, this ancestor that everyone shares in common. Um, can you, can you, can you see why the, the different trajectories and goals would result in these different presentations of genealogy? Maybe not. Maybe I, maybe this is just for me. It might just be for me. I like it. I like this comparison. I think it's helpful. <laughs> I'm sorry if it wasn't helpful for you. Again, questions in the comments always, and I will do my best to answer them in more depth. Um, I think my absolute favorite, though, <laughs> uh, would have to be 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 14 through 16. This is Paul at the beginning of his this letter to the church at Corinth saying, I'm thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. But I did baptize the household of Stephanus also. Beyond that, I do not know if I baptized anyone else. Well, well, hang on a second, Paul. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. You can't just say none of you except these two people. Uh, okay, these three people and their family okay i don't know i don't know who of you i baptized <laughs> sorry um th th this would be really awkward right if this was the verbatim word of god i mean any of these examples that i've given so far would be super awkward but especially this one what 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 you what truth is God trying to teach us with Paul's terrible memory? 
because <laughs> um, uh, if we want to say that this was the uh, you know pl verbal plenary inspiration of the word uh, and that this is a, the result of that, then we have to say that maybe God was confused about who Paul baptized. Hmm. Yeah, th there's there's places we maybe don't want to go theologically um, if we follow that to its conclusion. Uh, another example that I love, 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 love is how stupid the disciples are portrayed, um, like literally bumbling fools throughout the entire Gospels. And if if I don't know, if you're trying to trying to set up a religion um, or if you're your God commun communicating some inherent truth about the universe and trying to get people to believe in, 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 in Jesus, I guess. Why? Why? Why would you do this? Why would you portray the disciples, the people that would go on to, 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 to you know, do the church as, like, literal dum-dums? Okay. But, uh, let's actually do an example, though. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 31 through 37. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you men like wheat, but I have prayed for you personally that your faith will not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Okay, so Jesus is saying, hey, Simon Peter, Satan's going to like put you all through a big trial, namely like his death that's about to happen. Um, and, uh, and basically, y'all going to bail but you, you're going to come back. Okay, so that, that's what Jesus said. Uh, you like that summary? I think it's a good summary. Um, but then Peter says to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Uh, to which Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied three times that you even know me. And he said to them, all of them, when I sent you out with money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his cloak and buy one, for I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted with wrongdoers. For that... Uh, which refers to me has its fulfillment. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. This is uh, I I can't even I can't even do this with a straight face. Um, the, the the very next verse, and they said, "Lord, look! Here are two swords." And you can almost hear the exasperation when he says to them, ah, "It's enough." He, he just said. Anyway. I think I have to break that down more. I think that's one of those things that like it's really funny for me because I get it. But it's, you're all sitting there going like, what the hell is this guy? What is this guy talking about? Um, so Jesus just just did this just you know, transitions from saying like, nah, Peter, you are going to bail. Um, and then. Uh, say like, guys, this it's different than before. Last time I said, when I sent you all on your training missions, uh, you, you were fine and everything was provided for you and it was great, but no, you're going to need like everything now. 
all your wits to survive. Um, whoever has no sword is to sell his cloak and buy one. Whoever, every single one of you. And they say, look, here are two swords. We got it covered. Jesus, we're ready. We got two swords. And he said to them, oh, that's enough. Is it enough? Because he just said that whoever has no swords to sell his cloak. It's almost like Jesus is not being literal here and is trying to be like, like to tell them something else. <laughs> and they're not picking up on what he's putting down. I mean, basically what, what Jesus is saying again is times are, this is different. People are going to come after you. You have to be ready for that. But they don't get it. They're, they're like, oh, he said that we need swords. Look, we got two swords. It's okay. We're good. <sighs> okay, you must... His, his, it is enough is almost like, okay, you missed the point, but there's no, like, there is no energy worth expelling to attempt to correct you right now. Honestly, guys, Jesus tells some of the best jokes in the Gospels, and I really hope that we get to those in later podcast episodes. They're pretty, some sick burns, some, some really good jokes. Um, Jesus is actually a pretty cool guy. Uh, and we suck all the life out of everything when we try to flatten the text. Um, anyway, well, the whole point that I'm trying to make with all of this is that the text is very, very human. Very human. It's, it's a story, if you can even call it that, told over a millennia, literally. We're given all these different snapshots in history, and they, they almost don't make any sense on their own. They, they have differing agendas. They're vying for uh, 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 different results, even, at times. But there's one primary thread that connects everything in Scripture. All of it in one way or another, is testimony to the history of people's interaction with an ever-evolving perception of God. The, the text is a witness. It's people literally sharing stories experiences trying to tell people something trying to capture what they've encountered with words knowing that it is far insufficient it is because the text is human that it becomes a means of encountering god through the stories of others' experiences. It is because the text is human that it is even relatable and that it can teach us about ourselves. Peter Enns deals with this in a brilliant way by bringing the theological doctrine of the incarnation into the conversation. He says, and I'm not quoting, I am paraphrasing. <laughs> don't, don't put this on Peter Enns. Um, God meets us where we are. 
and speaks to us in ways that we would understand. Because of this, humans are as much a part of the process of the transmission of the truth that they have encountered as God is. And because humans are involved, it can get a little messy. But this is a beautiful picture. God meets us where we are, where we're at in all of our messiness and in all of our tendencies to focus on the wrong things or to miss the point of the story or to misinterpret. God still meets us. And God does so to call us to something better. That is something that is a consistent thread throughout the entire narratives of scripture. God calling God's people into something better than they have been able to imagine for themselves. Who better to tell us about that than the ones that have tried to walk the path before us? who have handed on the baton. That concludes this week's episode of The Bible Less Traveled. I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Until then, grace and peace.